and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on US foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in foreign policy with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow in foreign policy at Cato. And I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow at Cato. Today, we discuss the question of North Korea. Our guest is Joshua Pollock, a senior research associate at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey and editor of the journal Non-Proliferation Review. So before we dig into North Korea, which I think we can all agree is pretty newsworthy, I do want to talk just a little bit about the stories that are in the news today. Um, And let's start with another sort of non-proliferation story, which is the Trump administration extended the Iran sanctions waivers that are associated with the JCPOA. They extended that last week. But it still seems like the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, is on the rocks. Um, Even putting aside the merits of the deal itself, do we think Trump can kill this deal? Where is this going? Absolutely, he can kill the deal if that's what he wants to do. Whether that's constructive is another question. It, it's one thing to undo the restrictions on Iran. It's another thing to get the entire international community back on board in restoring the sanctions as they were, especially if they think there was no good justification for that. And the, totally agree. I, I, I mean, can he on paper? Sure. But there's going to be a lot of pressure not to. I mean, the same thing that's kind of kept him in it so far is still operant, I think. You know, perhaps that question was actually a little strangely phrased. Um, And it's because I've been thinking about this question of whether the JCPOA actually goes away if Trump decides to decertify Iran. And all the noises that are coming out of sort of European diplomats um, suggest that perhaps the JCPOA might continue to exist with Iran and a bunch of European nations afterwards, even if Trump decides to withdraw. Well, I think it would lose the force of the Security Council resolution that endorsed it uh, if it were undone properly, so to speak. But as a political commitment, uh, the other parties could continue to to adhere to it. And if that satisfies the Iranians, they might stay in. In fact, we've seen a, a signal from, I believe, the Iranian foreign minister to that effect, uh, that as long as the European Union stays in, the Iranians will stay in. And that that is very interesting all in and of itself just because it suggests that Iran really is dedicated to, you know, obeying its side of the deal. And, you know, if that's not data to the Trump administration, that's too bad. But <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, so switching gears a little uh, away from the world of nonproliferation, uh, next week we have the German elections. And this has sort of slid under the radar, I think, for most people, myself included, because it's not getting a lot of attention. It looks like Angela Merkel will again, uh, her party will be become the majority uh, or be able to form a coalition. She will again be chancellor. Um, But the election does seem to be in many ways a referendum on Germany's uh, immigration policy um, and on Merkel's refugee policies. Um, So why is it that Germany seems to be avoiding this populist backlash? Are they though? I mean, you know, in in trying to educate myself a little bit on this uh, recently, it it seems that the the right-wing party is polling third uh, now um, before the elections and and is surging just of late by hammering on the immigra- immigration question. And, you know, it smells an l- awful lot like the 2016 American election just in terms of, um, you know, that's certainly not a majority of Germans who agree with these sort of right-wing, very nativist 
sort of immigration and refugee policies. But there's a there is a base, and it's and it seems to be pretty mobilized right now. So it's you know, it's not time to panic in Germany, but it certainly seems worse than usual. I don't have much to add to that. I haven't been paying attention, to be honest. Like the rest of us. So I guess we'll see next week what the actual results are um, and whether they're what we expect. Um, so before we wrap up our news bits, I want to return to one of our favorite topics here on the podcast, and that's Trump's tweets and how they impact foreign relations. Um, and in this context, um, I'm thinking of the terrorist attack that happened in London in the United Kingdom last week. Trump's tweets in response to that made British leaders very angry when he suggested that perhaps they knew about the attack beforehand, that the attacker had been under surveillance, and no one really knew if he was giving up intelligence or not. Um, and so really the question is, how does this sort of incident and in Trump's tweets fit into the Trump administration's broader approach to counterterrorism? Is he helping or hurting? Well, distinguishing between the president and his Twitter account on one hand and the administration as a whole on, on the other is important, I think. This clearly has an effect. It's an irritant to, to uh, seem to accuse Scotland Yard of incompetence, uh, although I, I don't necessarily think that's the message he meant to send. It's, I don't want to try to read his mind, though. Uh, but I think we're all going to get used to this one way or another. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's, it's, it's almost automatic now. Uh, something big happens somewhere else in the world, and Trump says something that really annoys the people of that country. Um, or, or in fact, sometimes what he doesn't say. Like in Mexico, they had a hurricane, they had an earthquake. He said nothing, and the silence was deafening, and and led to actual you know ramifications. Mexicans were going to help, um, you know, after Hurricane Harvey in Texas, and then they decided, no, you know, thanks, Mr. Trump, we we don't want to play anymore. And uh, you know, certainly uh, in London this past few days, they've they've had enough of Trump commenting, and uh, you know, it just it's uh, Amer America first, I guess. <laughs> Maybe it's it's Fox News first. It, um, he seems to be reacting to what he sees on TV. And if it's not getting as much play or he's not tuned into it, then he won't say much. You know, Dan Dresner had an interesting article, I think, today or yesterday in the Washington Post. Um, and he's been making this point for a while that Trump's tweets seem to be really inversely correlated with how successful he's being. So the, the less that he feels he's achieving, the more that he basically sits and, as you say, watches Fox News, the more that he starts to lash out on Twitter. But that doesn't really suggest a solution for how we deal with it. Uh, maybe it, it tells us when we should discount it. Uh, but everyone's going to bring their own interpretation to this and, and so that's not an answer if, if it's going to alienate the Mexicans or the British or whoever. Uh, it's going to. But it, it seems that everyone gets their turn being on the receiving end of the Twitter account one way or another and I think after the first time, hopefully they begin to learn what it does or doesn't signify. Yeah, and I, I think that the Twitter account uh, – is an interesting question that future scholars will study, right? Somebody is going to come back and write a dissertation on signaling via Twitter. So on that note, let's pivot to our main topic of the day because I think the Korean Peninsula is somewhere where Trump has tried to engage in signaling via Twitter or perhaps bellicose statements, not been particularly successful. Um, but I'd like to start by getting sort of an overview of where we are today. So it seems like every week for the last six, eight weeks, we've seen a new missile test, a new nuclear test, a new development. Um, so what is it that has actually changed? Where is North Korea today? What is new? Well, uh, looking at the, the last few weeks, uh, what have they done? They have put uh, missiles over Japan 
two times now. They've done that in the past with space launchers, but this time quite overtly it's a missile test. They have uh, threatened to uh, conduct similar tests around the vicinity of Guam uh, in, in response to American bomber flights out of Guam, uh, which actually I believe did not occur after that threat until yesterday. So we'll have to see how they react. Uh, they have tested uh, what they describe as a hydrogen bomb uh, and it certainly was a high yield nuclear device, no, no doubt about that. So I, I tend to take their claim seriously. I don't think it was a extra high yield fission only device, although you can't absolutely rule that out. And uh, they, they have uh, achieved uh, more technological milestones. I suspect the next one will be uh, an ICBM launch over Japan sooner or later, uh, or it may be uh, carrying out the, uh, the Guam threat. We'll have to see. Yeah, and, and so I think the Guam threat was that they threatened to create a ring of fire around <laughs> Guam. And there was some translation issues about whether it was turning Guam into a ring of fire, but it turned out to be around Guam. Right. Well, they, they, they issued a, a statement in the name of the uh, strategic force, which is their missile force, uh, saying in the name of a spokesman that they would uh, envelop Guam. And that seemed to get an overreaction uh, because the next day they put out a follow-up clarifying statement from the commander of the strategic rocket force saying what that meant in great detail, saying that they would fire four missiles over the following areas of Japan and they, they named uh, a series of, of areas in, in the southern areas of, of, uh, of the main islands around Hiroshima, that, that general area. And that they would land, uh, I believe it was 30 to 40 kilometers away from Guam, which was consistent with what they said earlier, but more detailed. And uh, that, I think, helped reassure people that they weren't talking about an attack. And after all, why, why would they telegraph an attack? But, but uh, we're talking about a, a very aggressive, provocative sort of test. Yeah. So, I mean, when you when you say that and you describe that statement, sort of my, my social science hackles go up and I say, this sounds like they're signaling. This sounds like quite effective signaling. Is is that what they're trying to do here? Well, yeah. Uh, they, they made it clear that this is a uh, response to the use of Anderson Air Force Base on Guam as a base for, for bomber flights into their vicinity. Uh, there has been a presence since, oh, 2012, 2013, uh, where different uh, U.S. heavy bomber units, uh, whether it's B-52s, B-2s, B-1s, rotate in. It's called the continuous bomber presence. And they fly out of Guam in various different directions to do our own signaling, to, to show our own interest in these areas. The, the uh, East China Sea, for example, has been an issue. They've flown over the, the Senkaku slash Diaoyu Islands uh, shortly after the Chinese declared a, a, an um, air defense identification zone there a few years ago. Uh, they fly in all directions out of Guam uh, to do training, uh, to send signals, uh, to, to do what we call presence missions uh, in, in, in American uh, military slang. And uh, well, Korea has been a real favorite. They, they've come to South Korea a lot lately. And, and the North Koreans do not like it. So they are, in effect, uh, giving us a taste of our own medicine, uh, or at least saying they might. 
Yeah, and there have been some noises about whether exercises or overflights might be an acceptable uh, negotiation chip in exchange for for halting of tests. But I I don't think the Trump administration seems to be particularly interested in any of that. Well, they certainly want to see tests stop. Uh, There have been some signals from the State Department in particular that if the flight testing of missiles stops for for an undefined period, that they would be willing to have serious talks with the North Koreans. Uh, but how long is that period? Remains to be seen. Hasn't been defined. Just to follow up here, you know, one of the things that is interesting to me about this unfolding debate is when you say, Emma, you know, what's changed? It's interesting to ask yourself, is what's changed a perception or something actual on the ground? And so, for example, North Korea has had nuclear weapons for quite some time, although from American debate perspective, sometimes you might not realize that because it sounds a lot of times, even just in the last year, like people are just now realizing this and that this is to them somehow a new threat or a gathering threat. And then then the second piece is sort of related question for you, Josh, is uh, is it how new is it going to be then when they finally have a missile capable of reaching the United States for sure? Or do they already, and we just don't realize that either? Well, I mean, they've they've been able to um, reach any part of the United States, I think, uh, in principle, with with missiles since at least 2012. That's the first time they put an object in orbit, and that involves the same basic technologies. Not every last little thing, but it, it brings the message across. And I don't think it's an accident that after they did that for the first time successfully in December 2012, that it it's sparked uh, changes to the missile defense posture that the Obama administration was planning. Uh, I think it was in March of the next year that they announced changes to shift away from Europe and towards Asia. So uh, what they've done lately, I think, is uh, break down um, uh, or break a few holes through a, a wall of denial that they have this capability. They've shown us heat shields being tested. They've shown us uh, warheads. They've shown us the dimensions of of warheads. They have shown us higher and higher yield tests. And I think the even though you will hear people still say, oh, they haven't proven they have the end-to-end capability, who has? Uh, Nobody's done that since the 1960s and nobody's ever done it with an ICPM. So I I don't know why we, we fall back on that. But they have, I think, succeeded in changing the conversation about their capabilities. And you're right. They tested their first nuclear device in 2006. That was a long time ago. This should not be news. Yeah. I, I think you know that's a really interesting point that you raise about their showing us the dimensions of, of the nuclear weapons. Because I know some of your colleagues at, at Monterey have done work on basically looking at all these open source pictures and mm-hmm. saying, well, you know, what are they saying to us? And the conclusion that they seem to draw sometimes is the North Koreans are explicitly sending us a message by showing us a picture. Yes. Yes. Because they don't know what the United States thinks about their capabilities. So, so what do they do? They read our media. And I think they use that as a proxy. We have a lot of experts who are quoted in the media, who have publications, who tend to minimize their capabilities. And I think they are taking that public discussion and debate as a proxy for what the government may think, which seems to me like an error. But but it's what they've got to go on because the government doesn't say an awful lot about it, at least not till lately. They've heard more lately than 
been in a while. And so they, they go after the specific criticisms that have been leveled. Uh, there was a model published of the KN08 ICBM that I think significantly underestimated its range by mischaracterizing the first stage. So they showed us what the first stage looked like to correct that impression. There's been a lot of criticism of their heat shield technology. So they showed us heat shields and reentry vehicles and, and undergoing, in one case, undergoing a, a test on the ground by putting it under a rocket engine uh, to, to simulate the heat load of, of reentry. And in other cases, um, by simply letting us have a, a really good look at it, um, sometimes in, in connection with the test and sometimes just in general. Interesting. So you mentioned, you know, that there's a lot of people in the media, a lot of experts or experts in quotation marks who, who try to minimize um, the, the North Korean nuclear threat. But the other topic that comes up a lot in that context is ballistic, ballistic missile defense. And I know you've written a couple of pieces on this lately. Is, is it really going to prevent the North Koreans from being able to fire a missile at the U.S.? No. I, I would divide missile defense in, into two bins. One is the continental defense system we have, which is called the ground-based mid-course defense, or GMD. And the other is everything else. Everything else uh, seems to be working pretty well. Uh, there were problems in a number of programs in the 1990s. Some of them were canceled. Some of them were uh, reorganized. And flight test records for most BMD programs have been pretty good, but not for GMD. GMD is managed on a very different basis. It doesn't have the same type of oversight by uh, the, the testing and evaluation authorities in the Pentagon, by Congress. There have been relatively few flight tests. It's been very expensive, hasn't performed very well, and has been subject to a lot of criticism by the Office of Testing and Evaluation. I have real doubts about it. So. It's not clear to me that it would pose a, a serious um, threat to, to North Korean ICBMs. On the other hand, um, systems like Patriot, THAAD, and Aegis, although they can be circumvented, they can be saturated, they can be overcome in a variety of ways, I think they are serious considerations. And, and you can see the North Koreans taking them seriously when they test their um, short or medium range missiles, they usually test them in salvos. The idea being if you fire off a bunch simultaneously, it can swamp uh, the system. It can overload the system so you cannot track and hit every single object at once. So when they talk about launching four uh, missiles around Guam, I think the implication is that they're demonstrating they can do something that would overtax the defenses there. Yeah, I think that you know, for my money, and you know, I guess I, I came of age professionally when missile defense, at least in my crowd, was a joke um, and something that weren't going to be possible. I'm still there uh, for the most part in terms of ICBM uh, stuff. But uh, I think missile defense has gotten you know its share of the conversation. But the follow-up is, um, does Kim Jong-un believe in deterrence? Well, he believes in deterring us. Uh, the, the North Koreans used to treat deterrence as uh, almost a swear word, as, as just the flimsy American justification for threatening them with nuclear weapons. But after the invasion of Iraq, they formally embraced a deterrence doctrine for themselves. So they believe that they have to deter the United States and they have a strategy for doing that. 
Uh, I certainly don't think they're going to haul off and attack us. Uh, they're, they're not out to do that, at least not for its own sake. And uh, they very much believe in deterrence and, and articulate that theory uh, to us in many ways, many times. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the reason I ask is because that's another thing you often hear on, on this side of the debate in the U.S. is that um, North Korea's regime cannot be deterred. And thus, A, we need missile defense of all kinds and lots more of it. And B, we might need to do something preventively before they get around to doing something. I don't know why we hear that. Um, when was the last time they tried to invade South Korea? Uh, the answer is 1950. Uh, so yes, if, if you accept the point of view that their ultimate goal is, is the reunification of the Korean Peninsula, then that suggests they've been deterred because they haven't launched any invasions in the last few decades. Uh, but that's not to say that that's a panacea. They, they certainly have used force in limited ways, often very aggressively. Uh, assassinating South Korean leaders, for example. Uh, but, uh, you know, looking at the big picture, uh, there's a track record for deterrence in Korea. Yeah. And I, I do think this this point that we talk about Kim Jong-un as if he's irrational and he shouldn't be allowed to have these weapons because he can't be deterred. And I believe, you know, H.R. McMaster, the national security advisor, actually said this publicly that Korea can't be, North Korea can't be deterred because they're bad actors, they're cruel to their people, which fundamentally seems to misunderstand the idea of deterrence. Well, I think he's saying that um, for effect. I, I think he's smarter than that, honestly. And what he's saying is that we have to, we, the nations of the world, have to treat this problem with the urgency it deserves, that we cannot sit back and accept this, that it's too dangerous. So he's not going to say that a nuclear-armed North Korea is a manageable problem uh, as long as there's any hope for, for derailing it through collective action at the UN and, and otherwise. So, so he stands next to um, our UN ambassador, uh, Ambassador Haley, and, and articulates this. And I think it's his way of uh, backing her up and uh, saying, in, in effect, you've got to work with her or, or we will be forced to do something drastic. I'd be a lot more comfortable about your assessment of McMaster if he hadn't also at the same press conference said, you know, we're, we, we, we're out of road and suggesting that there is actually something really new that wasn't true before but is true now and, and we're, it's, now it's time to finally deal with it. Well, you know, he, he contradicted himself in the space of about a minute. He, he said we're out of time, we're out of road. And then later on, about 45 seconds later, he says this will take some time to work. So which, which is it? General McMaster. And more importantly, which of those things does Kim Jong-un read and believe? Because as you pointed out, it's their interpretation of what McMaster is saying that matters for their next move, not ours. So, Yeah. And uh, Rex Tillerson, as you pointed out earlier in the conversation, has, has said different things again. Um, but before we wrap up, um, you know, I want to talk just very quickly about what this means for the broader region. Um, you know, if we assume that a nuclear North Korea is an unfortunate fact of reality, it is here to stay, what does this mean for U.S. involvement in East Asia? What does this mean for East Asian countries, China, Japan, South Korea? I don't think it's going to change the fundamentals unless we let it. Uh, we don't – we can't be forced out of South Korea. We can't be forced away from Japan. It's something that we have to decide to do. So um, I think if we would just keep our cool and not overreact, this would not be so acute. 
after all, what, what happened in the last year that made this so acute? I, I think about this from time to time. And I've ultimately concluded is we have a new administration with a new style. And other than that, not a whole heck of a lot, except that the North Koreans are just a little further down the track. And there's nothing they've done that's really wasn't predictable or predicted for that matter. Uh, so I, I think that if uh, we were to bring a different tone to this, that doesn't mean passively accept things. It doesn't mean we don't make life difficult for them uh, in, in pursuing this path if we can. But I, I think that a little less hysteria uh, might, might help. Certainly when you do hear war talk um, out of the Secretary of Defense or the National Security Advisor or the President, the, the people it frightens the most are not the North Koreans, it's the Japanese and the South Koreans uh, because they're the ones who are, are closest to the fire and, and they know that, that they have the most to lose in all this. So I don't think they're going to let that happen if they can help it. Uh, but there is some question of, of not are they going to lose confidence in us? Uh, it's, it's are they going to become so scared of us that they, they look for new ways to restrain us? Uh, I, th I think that as long as we don't do, do that, nothing drastic has to change. I, I actually agree, Josh. I, I think, you know, if you look at the history of freakouts about nuclear prolif proliferation, Oh gosh, Russia, it's the end of the world. Oh gosh, China, it's the end of the world. Oh, it never works out like that. It's never the end of the world. Regional dynamics don't change nearly as much in as drastic or negative a way as people imagined. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, North Korea is going to sleep better at night, I think, knowing it can do what it can do. But I don't, I don't really see how that changes much of the facts on the ground in Asia. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting you should say that. I think there was a lot of anxiety around uh, the first Chinese nuclear test. There were debates beforehand whether or not uh, the United States should launch an attack to, to prevent it. it. It's awfully funny to hear the, the same thing said about North Korea now a, a decade into the course of nuclear testing. Uh, well, maybe funny is not the right word. Maybe it's appalling. Uh, but once they went and did it, once we decided we weren't going to do that and once they went and tested, if, if you read the, the, uh, the president's remarks, President Johnson's remarks, which actually uh, the, the historian Alex Wellerstein tweeted them out uh, just the other day for some reason, it was very calm. He says, this isn't unexpected. It's not going to affect any of our defense commitments. Obviously, he wasn't pleased, but, but he, he just simply said, in fact, we're here to stay and this isn't going to push us out of the region. Yeah. And, you know, I just wanted to, before we finish, get to uh, a point that you raised in our conversation before we started recording, which is the idea that the, the biggest problem with North Korea might actually be that it's a proliferation risk itself now. Yeah. Well, over the long term, uh, that, that could be the case. Uh, they uh, are believed to have supplied uh, some uranium, not necessarily in a very useful form, mind you, to the Libyans some years ago. Uh, they engaged in some exchanges with the Pakistanis, um, which we may not – still may not fully understand. And of course, they supplied an, an entire reactor for producing plutonium to the Syrians. That has to be the most egregious act so far. More recently, they were marketing uh, a nuclear material, lithium-6, through a trade publication, which is kind of eye-popping. Uh, I, I don't know if there are any takers. but. 
this, this is an enduring issue. Uh, one question is who would be their next customer? Who would be crazy enough to buy nuclear technology from the North Koreans? I don't want to find out is, is one answer. Uh, I, I do think this, this is a, a serious and growing concern. As they become more capable and as they remain money hungry, uh, it, it's an option that's going to present itself. Certainly worth thinking about as we, we move along. Well, I do just want to ask you uh, the surprise question that we ask all of our guests here on Power Problems, which is what do you think is the most overhyped threat to the U.S.? And what threat do you actually worry about but you think we maybe don't talk about? Huh. Well, uh, I, I think overhyped, that, that's easy. Uh, EMP, uh, electromagnetic pulse, uh, there's a whole little cottage industry on, on hyping the threat from EMP. I'm not sure why. Maybe may to enlist additional support for missile defense. But EMP is in effect from nuclear weapons. So if you have a concern about nuclear attack, you have a concern about EMP. If you have a concern about EMP, you have a concern about nuclear attack. It, it's the least menacing uh, weapon effect, I think, after blast, heat, uh, prompt radiation, nuclear fallout. Um, I, I think it... it comes dead last. Uh, there are debates about uh, exactly uh, how powerful it might be in frying uh, electrical circuits, which is what it is. But you know what? I, I just think that takes takes a back seat to mass destruction. Uh, as for what is the uh, most underestimated threat, well, that's hard. Um, if, if you're worried about EMP and the power grid, I, I would argue you should worry more about solar storms. Uh, you know, you can't deter the sun. Uh, but, but uh, you know, it, it, is, it is hard to know what, what the most underappreciated uh, threat to the United States is. Maybe I'll put it this way. Maybe I'll just say this. There's only one country in the world that could end the existence of the United States uh, on any given day, and that is Russia. We don't think about that much. Maybe it's not a problem, but uh, it's always a, a latent issue. The, the uh, uh, massive Cold War nuclear arsenals are not entirely gone. Uh, both sides operate them on a large scale, and they're, they're the only ones who could you know, drop a thousand or so warheads on us on a given day. That's all we have time for, but uh, thanks to Josh for joining us today um, for this episode of Power Problems. Um, you can connect with us on social media using the hashtag FPPowerProblems. Um, and if you like this podcast, please leave us a rating on iTunes. That helps us get noticed. Uh, as always, this episode was produced by Jeff Geld. Have a great day.